Right, if you would, go ahead and turn into your pew Bibles to Jeremiah chapter 5. You can find that in those pew Bibles if you don't have your own. And if you don't have a copy of Scripture, we have free Bibles to give you in, in the foyer there. Um, but if you would turn your Bibles to page 632, we're going to be looking at Jeremiah 5. Jeremiah 5. To bring us up to speed a little bit and to give us some context... I want to just read some representative passages from chapter 2, chapter 3, and chapter 4. So that because last week we looked at Jeremiah chapter 1, today chapter 5, there's three chapters in between. And so let me just read a few passages just to get us up to speed because what I want us to see and what I said last week um, in, in, our, in my welcome is, is that this is God's word to his people. And if you have confessed your sin and put your faith in Jesus, you are his people. Therefore, this is God's word to you. It's not just a word that Jeremiah spoke to Israel because in Israel we see our own story. How many times do we rebel against God and how many times is he faithful to come back to us and remind us of his grace? And so Israel's story is an archetype. It's it's a model for what our lives look like. And so let me just read some passages here from chapter two. Israel found joy in paltry places. He says this, go and proclaim, go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord. He says to you, I remember the devotion of your youth, your love as a bride, how you followed me in the wilderness and a land not sown. My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me. The fountain of living waters and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. As a bride, as a youth, you may have loved the Lord. You may have been fervent for the things of God. But as things have happened in your life, you've grown cold to the things of God. And you've found yourself digging out cisterns that can hold no water. Chapter 3. God is merciful In spite of their wickedness. Return faithless Israel. This is God speaking to Israel. Return faithless Israel declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger. For I am merciful declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt. That you rebelled against the Lord your God. Return O faithless sons. And I will heal your faithlessness. And then chapter 4. Idolatry that God considers adultery. Right? These, these, these themes run throughout, but this idolatry, this forsaking of God, the Lord considers as adultery, being unfaithful, committing infidelity against God. He says this, Circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts, O men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, lest my wrath go forth like fire. And burn with none to quench it because of the evil of your deeds. Your ways and your deeds have brought this upon you. This is your doom and it is bitter. It has reached your very heart. I looked on the earth and behold, it was without form and void. Reminiscent of of Genesis where the earth is just decimated and the Lord is is creating out of the form and the void, the formless and void earth and, and to the heavens and they had no light. So the Lord is merciful and he is about the work of recreation in his people. And yet they rebelled. 
They committed adultery. And so Israel has forsaken God. Much like we do each week. Forsaking God. Thinking that we can find our joy and our satisfaction in a spouse or in a child. Or in a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Or or a good test grade as school is starting. And we think that that will bring us happiness and joy. And yet the Lord says, come to me, the fountain of living waters. That will never putrefy, will never grow old. That is ever new, an ever flowing stream that I am eager to give to my people. And so Israel, we see in our story in chapter 5, that they have forsaken the Lord. And so God sends the evil Babylonians to Israel, to Jerusalem, to mete out the justice that he cried out that we read in our call to worship. That the Lord says, you all have been wicked. You have, you have not taken care of the fatherless and the widow and those who are outcasts. The sojourner in your midst. You all have only hoarded for yourself. Instead of giving to others. Instead of caring for those who are weak. And so I will send the Babylonians to you. The ones who worship foreign gods. Because you want to worship foreign gods. I'll send you to where they come from. And you'll worship foreign gods. And you'll serve a foreign people. And let me, let me just say this real briefly. As we get into texts of judgment, it's really easy for our human heart to want to try to make connections in our world. So you remember not too long ago, Hurricane Katrina. A lot of people said, oh, that's God's judgment on New Orleans. And then people said, oh, all that that happened over there in Houston, that's God's judgment. All that that happened in Nama City, that's God's judgment on those people. I just want to make a brief parenthetical remark that we need to be very careful in saying what God's judgment is or is not. Unless your name is prophet, unless you are one who God has called out and said, this is the one who speaks for me, we should be slow to speak about God's judgment and we should tremble when evil happens. And we should look at that as an opportunity for us to repent and ask for God's mercy. So we need to be very careful. So as we, so as we talk about these Issues of judgment. This is Jeremiah the prophet that God has called from his mother's womb that we looked at last week. And so we're not God's prophets. We're not the ones who are standing here and pronouncing judgment on God's people. So so I just want to make sure that that's clear because it is very easy for us to want to try to find cause and effect relationships. But the Lord doesn't necessarily always have what we can see with our eyes. So he needs to reveal that to us unless you're a prophet. Please don't pronounce judgments on anybody. So let's just read the first uh, 13 verses here. And I'm just going to do something a little different. I'm just going to read these passages and then make comments as we walk through it. And I want you to listen to recurring themes that we heard already in chapter 2, 3, and 4. And then I want you to listen for recurring themes because those themes I'm going to highlight at the end and ask the question, why in the world did Israel rebel? I mean, they had seen some amazing things. They had a prophet speaking to them, standing at the temple and saying, this is what God's saying to you. So why in the world did Israel forsake God? That's the question. I've got several um, several responses, but we're going to see that in our text. So Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 1. Run to and fro through the streets of Jerusalem. Look and take note. Search her squares to see if you can find a man, one who does justice and seeks truth, that I may pardon her. This is uh, reminiscent 
of Abraham. Remember Abraham interceding for Sodom and Gomorrah? He says, Lord, if there are 50 righteous people, please don't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, Lord, if, if I can, uh, if there are 40, 30, 20, 10. And then he stops short and the Lord destroys Sodom and Gomorrah. And so we see here that Israel is even worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. That there is not even one who seeks justice. Not even one who seeks truth. Otherwise, the Lord would have pardoned Jerusalem. But Jerusalem had become even worse than Sodom and Gomorrah in their their whoring after other gods, in their running after others that they thought could satisfy them. And so we see here that if you can find a man, just one who does justice, then I'll pardon him. Verse 2. Though they say... As the Lord lives, yet they swear falsely. And so we see here, verse 2, this hypocrisy. This hypocrisy of of God's people using religious language to, to put other people under their thumb. It's really easy, and I know that each of us in some capacity has experienced religious folk who will use a lot of spiritual language to manipulate and to put other people down. To judge. I'm not judging, but they're judging. Who who look at other people and say, oh, I'm glad I'm not like that person. I'm glad I'm not a tax collector or, or some sinner like that. So it's possible to use religious language to, dev- to deny the very thing that we claim we believe. We can say that we love other people all day long, but then when the opportunity comes up, are we really sacrificing Are we laying down our lives? Because that is what love does. It lays down its life for others. And so we can say all day long, I love my neighbor. But then with our lives, we we prove that that we don't really believe that. Or maybe we say that God is awesome. God's in control of everything. But then you find yourself up late at night, anxious, worried, fearful about the future. If God's awesome and in control of everything, then why is that not translating to your own life? And so we see that that they're using this religious language as a cloak for what's underneath in their heart, a heart that's far from God. And so I fear that for myself and I fear that for the church in the West, that we'll we'll have a lot of spiritual things that we do, but our hearts are devoid of any kind of spiritual truth. Verse 3. Oh, Lord. Do not your eyes look for truth. You have struck them down, but they felt no anguish. You have consumed them, but they refused to take correction. They have made their faces harder than rock, and they have refused to repent. Do you think that Israel probably was saying, I'm I'm not going to repent at all? I think more than likely they diverted themselves with a whole lot of busyness, with a whole lot of these religious things that we've talked about. And yet they never repented when the Lord said, do you love me? He said, yes, Lord, I love you. Look at all the things I'm doing. No, no, no. Do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Look, I go to church every Sunday. I go to synagogue. I'm doing all of these things. But do you love me? their hearts are far from God. And the Lord is relentlessly pursuing his people. He's pursuing you even right now. You probably you, you may find that as I'm preaching and as I'm as I'm sharing this, that you don't really care what Jeremiah says right now. And you know what? 
the Lord still loves you. The Lord still is drawing near to you. Even now, even tomorrow morning when you're like, ah, I don't even believe this anymore. Man, I'm just so, so tired of all this. I'm just going to not do this anymore. Where's God? He's not here. You find yourself saying that, but my friend, God is still drawing near to you. He loves you. He's mercifully and relentlessly pursuing you, even though their faces were harder than rock and they had refused to repent. The Lord was saying, please, if you would just come to me, I'll I'll forgive you. I love you. But they couldn't see because of their pride. They didn't start with the with the assumption that they were sinners in need of a savior. Look at verse 4 and 5. Then I said, this is Jeremiah speaking. Then I said, uh, Lord, these are only the poor. They have no sense. For they don't know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. I'll go to the great and I'll speak to them. For they know the way of the Lord, the justice of their God. (laughs) But they all alike had broken the yoke. They had burst the bonds. And so Jeremiah said, well, you know what? (laughs) What they need is that they're just ignorant. That's why they're not repenting. They, they don't really understand. Surely, you know what? Yeah, these are just really simple folk. They really don't know the ways of God. They, they don't study the Torah, and they really don't know what God has said. So I'm going to go to the leaders. I'm going to go to the religious leaders, and I'm going to say, repent. Turn to the Lord. Follow His ways. Pursue justice. Care for the fatherless. Care for the weak. What did he say? They all alike have broken the yoke. They have burst the bonds. This is, this is reminiscent of Psalm 2. In Psalm 2, what do we see is that those who rebel against the Lord's anointed one, what do they say? Let us break his yoke off of our necks. Let us burst his bonds because he is a slave master and we will be free. We'll be free if we don't have to find ourselves just listening to God anymore for him to tell us what we can and can't do. And so we're going to burst his bonds and we're going to be free. And he's saying it doesn't matter. The problem isn't lack of information. The problem in my life and the problem in your life is not that you don't know enough. Our struggle with the things of God is due to our desire to live on our own terms. To really think, and this is to call it what it is, to think that we know better than God. So when he tells us, to turn the other cheek. When he tells us that it's better to give than to receive. We say, I, I, I hear that, but I really live this way. And that's what we, we see in Israel, too. Verse 6. Therefore, because they alike have wanted to break the yoke and burst the bonds. He says, therefore, a lion... From the forest shall strike them down. A wolf from the desert shall devastate them. A leopard is watching their cities. Everyone who goes out of them shall be torn in pieces because their transgressions are many. Their apostasies are great. How can I pardon you? Your children have forsaken me and have sworn by those who are no gods. When I fed them to the full, they committed adultery and trooped the houses of whores. They were well-fed, lusty stallions, each neighing for his neighbor's wife. Shall I not punish them for these things, declares the Lord? And shall I not avenge myself on a nation such as this? They had worshipped idols. They had worshipped idols. 
And God said, you have committed adultery against me. They had forsaken God and run after other gods that they thought would satisfy them. The, the cisterns. And every time that we think that we can live without God knowing or God seeing or God being present with us while we're sinning, the Lord says, you're committing adultery and I'm there in the room with you. And I know all about it. I know all about it. And then look at ten, uh, verse 10. Go up through her vine rows and destroy But make not a full end. Strip away her branches, for they are not the Lord's. For the house of Israel and the house of Judah have been utterly treacherous to me, declares the Lord. They have spoken falsely of the Lord and have said, he'll do nothing. No disaster will come upon us, nor shall we see sword or famine. The prophets will become wind. The word is not in them. Thus shall it be done to them. They had assumed that they could do whatever they wanted without God knowing. Without God seeing and God caring. But that is utterly false. So let me ask this. This is the question that I said we'd answer. How did Israel get to a place where they would forsake God? How did that happen? And we ought to heed their story, brothers and sisters, because we are not. The apple doesn't doesn't fall far from the tree, does it? So we ought to look at Israel instead of saying, man. If I had seen that, I'd be listening all day, every day. Well, we have his word, and we can listen all day, every day. And so what is it? Have you ever, have you ever wondered that? What is it that? How did Israel get to such a place where they have said, I, I hear you speaking. <laughs> I, hear, I, I see your lips moving, but I, I don't hear anything. You know, how did they get to that place? Well, let me, let me uh, do a little illustration here. Imagine that your soul... Is this shiny coin right here? Is this shiny coin? And so what happens over time, you know, we read in Hebrews chapter 12 that throw off the things that entangle you. Throw off the things that hinder you. Throw off the things that keep you from feeling the things of God. Because every time we put more clothing on, we are deadening our souls, our inner souls to the things of God through busyness. Through, through uh, not obeying what we know is clear in Scripture. And so our souls are like this coin. And every time that we try to find our satisfaction in something else, it's like taking one of these little paper towels here and wrapping our soul in it. So how did Israel wrap its soul up to where it couldn't start to feel the things? It doesn't... It, it, you can still feel the pressure on my fingers, right? This coin. You still feel some of the things. And so it doesn't happen all of a sudden. Somebody doesn't say, you know what? I'm, gonna, I'm just going to run away from God. No, it happens little bit by little bit. And so what did Israel do? They, first, they took God for granted. That's one of the things they did. They took God for granted. They had been recipients of God's mercy day after day, week after week, year after year, generation after generation. They had seen that God had rained manna down from heaven. And fed their fathers in the wilderness. And they had taken God's mercy for granted. And then they took another. And they said, I don't think God really cares about me anymore. I don't think God cares. Hmm. You think you've got to look out for yourself, maybe. 
You've been through a myriad of difficulties in life and you think that you're all alone. My friend, if you have sin in your life and you have people that are sinners around you, join the club. You're not alone because there are tons of sinners in this room. And God has not forsaken you. You're not alone. And God does care for you. And so what happens then, Israel then begins to say, hmm, if God isn't around, and if God doesn't care about me, then you know what? I'm just going to stop pursuing the things of God. Because you and I can begin to assume that God doesn't care, so I can do whatever I want. And so then we stop, we take his word, and we're like, yeah, I'll read it tomorrow. I'll obey tomorrow. I'll make that phone call tomorrow. And we delay when the Lord says today is the day of salvation. Today is the day that you can obey right now with what you know. And so they start to slowly start to to merge that worship of health and wealth and prosperity with their own God. And they stop pursuing God. They're like, "If, if I could just have more money. If I could just have more security, then, then I'd be okay. The Lord says, find in me your all in all. And finally, they believe that God is absent. And this is something that we can subtly let slip in. We make decisions without reference to God. Do you see what's happening here? It's not being able to feel very much of my touch anymore. That's what slowly happens. And that's what slowly happened to Israel. Is they, they believed that God was absent. They cried out and they said, well, God's not going to do anything. Because he's not around. And then lastly, God became a Lord only and not also a husband. What do I mean by that? Now, this is something I need to be very careful about. The Lord is always the Lord. The Lord is always the Lord of our lives. Period. But, but you're, and you're going to be a slave to something. You're going to, so, so you think that you can break the, the bonds off of your neck, the yoke of the Lord, and you find that you're a slave to something else. Maybe it's your, yourself. Maybe it's people-pleasing. Maybe it's desiring that person to understand you, to accept you, to love you. And so you become their slave. And so... When, when I say this, I would say a majority of us say, yeah, Matt, I, I believe that the Lord is Lord. He's the Lord of my life, and that's awesome. So I don't think that we struggle with that, and I don't think Israel's struggling with the fact that the Lord is the Lord. He's the one who stands over them. He, they are his servants. But I think they did struggle with the fact that he's their husband. And I think that many of us struggle with the fact that the Lord is your husband. He is the one who wants to draw near to you. He wants to have true, lasting, deep intimacy with you. He wants you to welcome him into the inmost parts of your heart. He wants you to be able to slow down and say, please speak for I'm listening. He wants to he wants to the dark places that you don't even let your best friend know about. He he already knows them, but he wants you to welcome him into those dark recesses. And become a husband. To know him most intimately. Longing for him to care for you as a husband cares for a wife. So let me just ask you this. If you doubt this, let me just ask two diagnostic questions. When was the last time you spent unhurried time 
in prayer? When was the last time you spent unhurried time in prayer? And then secondly, when was the last time you spent unhurried time reading God's word? The operative word here is unhurried. The operative word here is unhurried. It's to slow down, to sit and marinate in the things of God. To say, you know what? God is my portion, my very great reward. He is my life. He is my strength. Therefore, I want to hear from him and I want to talk to him. And to cultivate that relationship with God as opposed to like, yeah, I need to read more more Bible. I need need to study more theology. Yeah, I need to pray more. Well, do it. If you you know that that's where your heart is going to find its satisfaction, just simply do it. And the Lord will meet you there. The Lord, you'll find mercy and grace. And you can thank him for even giving that desire to want to pray as a gift from him. Because when we spend time hearing God's word, listening to him, sharing with him our hurts and our struggles, when we spend time... With our closest confidant, his words burn away the chaff. They burn away all this fluff in our lives. The fluff that we surround ourselves with, the busyness, all the hurriedness. Because you make time for what's important to you. You can say that loving God, loving your neighbor is important. But are we making room for God? Are we making room for our neighbor in our lives? Are we crowding our days and with busyness? With getting from one thing to the next instead of being unhurried, sitting at the Lord's feet and saying, Lord, I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to listen. I'm not going to be busy clamoring from the kitchen to the dining room, getting everything prepared. I'm just going to sit here at your feet, Jesus, and listen. And this is what God was doing by sending Jeremiah, by speaking his consuming and fiery words that we're going to end here with. He was burning up all the assumptions, all the presumption, all the pride. Through judgment, he was burning away all that would keep them. So Jeremiah sent fiery and consuming words to burn up all the chaff in their lives. He said, I want you to listen to me. I want you to hear from me. And I want to burn away all of that that's keeping you from listening and obeying and loving me. So listen to these words from Jeremiah. It says, therefore, verse 14, thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, because you have spoken this word that he'll do nothing. Behold, I am making my words in your mouth a fire and this people would and the fire shall consume them. Behold, I am bringing against you a nation from afar. O house of Israel, declares the Lord. It is an enduring nation. It is an ancient nation. A nation whose language you do not know, nor can you understand what they say. Their quiver is like an open tomb. They are almighty warriors. They shall eat up your harvest and your food. They shall eat up all your sons and your daughters. They shall eat up your flocks and your herds. And they shall eat up your vines and your fig trees. Your fortified cities in which you trust. They shall beat down with the sword. But even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make a full end of you. And when your people say, why has the Lord our God done all these things to us? You shall say to them, as you have forsaken me and serve foreign gods in your land, so you shall serve foreigners in a land that is not yours. Did you catch the grace and the mercy of God that he is in the business of burning away all the things that you busy and crowd out your heart with so that you can't even feel the things of God? Right? 
What's beautiful in all this is that in the heart of judgment, in the hottest part of the fire, what does the Lord promise? He's not going to utterly consume you. He's not going to utterly consume you. He's burning away everything in your life so that you will find your satisfaction and joy in Him and deep, unhurried communion with God. Look at verse 18. Did you hear it? But even in those days, declares the Lord, I will not make a full end of you. See, Israel was sent into exile, into judgment, so that God could burn away the chaff. He could burn away all that they had put their faith in. Though the fire be hot, and burn, and it hurt, and the judgment of God, you feel the weight on your shoulders that I cannot bear it any longer. The Lord is trying to burn away all those things that you have crowded your heart with and become dull to. And my friends, he won't make a full end of you. Right? He's burning away all of this so that you can eventually be a purified people. People putting your faith and your hope and your joy in him and in him alone and in nothing else. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are merciful and kind and gracious. Abundant. Abundant in loving kindness. Father, help us when we find our hearts running after other gods that we think will satisfy us, broken cisterns that hold no water. When we find our hearts running after satisfaction in other people, finding our circumstances too heavy to bear, remind us that you are in the business of stripping down all else so that we can run to you. And have the deep fellowship that you long to have with each of us in this room. So, Father, where there are those of us who think that you have abandoned them. Where there are those of us who think that you don't care and that you don't see and that you don't know what's going on in our lives. Where we have made decisions apart from you. Thinking that we knew better. Where we have been content with religiosity and not with the deep intimacy that you long to have with us as a husband. We pray that you would help us to see that even the fire is hot and it will burn away all else till only you remain. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.